And good afternoon. You're listening to Ken Hudnall. This is the Ken Hudnall Show. Coming to you from our studios right here in exciting El Paso, Texas. Gateway to the Old West and the most haunted city in the country. My system froze for a moment. Well, the last three shows have been about decoding the VA. And we'll do more shows on that fascinating topic. Um... I'm going to, for this show, been asked to go back to talking about haunted hospitals. There are certainly a lot of them. The, uh, we did Canada. We're now going to turn our attention to Illinois. Ashmore Estates in Ashmore, Illinois. Well, One of the paranormal investigators um, believed he was uh, being stalked in Ashmore Estates in an abandoned insane asylum in Ashmore, Illinois. He was being stalked by a shadow figure. And we've talked on previous shows about what shadow figures are. You know, but now before we get really rolling on uh, talking about the uh, insane asylum. Today is February 6th, 37th day of the year. 328 days remain till the year is over with. 1579, the Archdiocese of Manila is made a diocese by a papal bull with Domingo de Salazar being the first bishop. That's right, the Pope can just wave his hand and create an archdiocese. 1685, James II of England, and who was also James VII of Scotland, is proclaimed king when his brother Charles II dies. Now, Charles I, of course, is the one that got his head cut off. 1694, the warrior Green Dandara, leader of the runaway slaves in Colombo dos Palmares. Uh, in Brazil, is captured and commits suicide rather than be returned to a life of slavery. There's been a few warrior queens in history. She was uh, apparently quite uh, fierce. 1778, in Paris, the Treaty of Alliance and the Treaty of Amity and Commerce are signed by uh, the U.S. and France, signals the official recognition of the new republic. 1778, New York becomes the third state to ratify the Articles of Confederation. 1788, Massachusetts becomes the sixth state to ratify the U.S. Constitution. 1806 saw the Battle of San Domingo, British naval victory against the French in the Caribbean. 1819, the Treaty of Singapore was signed by Sir Thomas Stamford Raffles, Hussein Shah of Johor and Timon Gong Abdul Rahman and is now recognized as the founding of modern Singapore. 1820 saw the first 86 African immigrants sponsored by the American Colonization Society depart New York start a settlement in present-day Liberia. Uh, in 1918, British women over the age of 30 who met minimum property qualifications get the right to vote in representation of a 
People Act of 1918 is passed by Parliament. You had to have property. 1919, the American Legion is founded. 1919 also saw the five-day Seattle General Strike begin. More than 65,000 workers in the city of Seattle, Washington, walk off the job. 1922, the Washington Naval Treaty is signed in Washington, D.C. Limiting the naval armaments of the U.S., Britain, Japan, France, and Italy. But no one else, of course. Because if we limit, they'll limit. We all know that's true. Yeah. 1934, far-right leagues rally in front of the Palais Bourbon in an attempt to coup against the French Third Republic. Creates a political crisis in France. 1944, on this date, saw the great raids against Helsinki begin. For those who are not familiar with them, uh, the Soviet Union launched three massive bombing raids against Helsinki. They're going to break the Finnish fighting spirit and force the Finns to the peace table. The raids are conducted uh, on the nights of the 6th and the 7th of February, the 16th and 17th, and 26th and 27th of February. Stalin had obtained British and American support for the measure at the Tehran Conference in 43. Uh, the Soviets hoped to force Finland to break its ties with Germany and agree to a peace settlement. Didn't quite work out the way they intended. 1951 saw the Canadian Army enter combat in the Korean War. Uh, 1951, the broker of Pennsylvania Railroad passenger train derails near Woodbridge Township in New Jersey. Kills 85 people and injures over 500. One of the worst rail disasters in American history. 1952, on this date, Elizabeth II became Queen of UK and her other realms and territories and head of the Commonwealth upon the death of her father, George VI. And at the moment of secession, she was in a treehouse at the Treetops Hotel in Kenya. Bit of a tomboy, perhaps. 1958, eight Manchester United FC players and 15 other passengers are killed in the Munich air disaster. 1987, Justice Mary Gaudron becomes the first woman to be appointed to the High Court of Australia. Uh, let's see, what else we got? Um, 2006, Stephen Harper becomes Prime Minister of Canada. 2012, a magnitude 6.7 earthquake hits the central Philippine island of Negros. Kills 112. Uh, 2016, an earthquake of 6.6 magnitude strikes southern Taiwan. Kills 117. 2018, SpaceX's Falcon Heavy, a super heavy launch vehicle, makes its maiden flight. And... On this date in 2021, Secretary of State Anthony Blinken suspends agreements with Guatemala, El Salvador, and Honduras to send asylum seekers back to their home country. After all, our president wants them all here, but not in his home, in your home, which is one of the main issues I have with his policies. Everyone else should do what he says, but not him. All right. We started, and we're going to continue talking about 
haunted hotels in the U.S. And we're talking about the uh, an abandoned insane asylum in Ashmore, Illinois. Uh, the interesting tale started with him as a tour group on the third floor of the old building. It was nighttime, incredibly dark. But Cameraman Lee Kirkland saw a black mass come out of one of the rooms and then dart back in. So intrigued, he suggested that uh, the investigator go into the room with a shape to investigate. That's what investigators do. Well, he obliged, and his, the recorder he was holding in his hand uh, called a DVP that sounds like an angry voice saying, Get out, goddammit. Afterwards, despite the fact the majority of the house was warm, people who entered that room reported feeling cold and overcome with emotions that seemed to come out of nowhere. Well, recognizing the room as a potential paranormal hotspot, he gathered a group of the tour attendees and his camera crew together and attempted to make contact with the spirit, which is not always a wise or safe thing to do. And he said, is there somebody in uh, that followed me into the room? Pages are stuck together of what a, a manuscript. Nobody heard a uh, response in real time. And he felt a cold mass move through the room, and later when he reviewed the recording he made at the time, he heard a voice respond to that question. Yes, I will follow you. And like many hospitals that were founded in the early 1900s, Ashmore Estates began its existence as a poor farm and helped society's most vulnerable. Built in 1916, originally called the Coles County Poor Farm, it functioned in that capacity, provided a home and sustenance for people and able to provide it for themselves until 1959 when it was bought by uh, outside investors, renamed and turned into a private psychiatric hospital. So what if the, the indigenous people who had lived on it didn't have the place to go? We can't get in the way of making money, don't you know? Now, during its time as Coles County Poor Farm, the operation was largely self-sufficient, as most of these were, and it functioned much like a hamlet or a small village. One former tenant described the poor farm as a they were warm and had uh, good food on the table. Loved working and earning their keep. They weren't moochers. They mostly grew their own food, did their own butchering, and smoked the meat. Smoked their own bacon and hams in the smokehouse and killed and dressed all their own chickens and made their own butter. As it happens in any settlement, though, people died. And tenants of the Coles County poor farm who passed away were laid to rest in a small cemetery north of the grounds. There was another large cemetery for paupers uh, nearby. 1902, the poor farm was inspected by the Board of State Commissioners of Public Charities, and which noted that uh, There were insane people housed at the facility, but no special arrangements were made to care for them. On the plus side, that meant mentally ill residents weren't locked up or kept in restraints. Um, at the time, excessive use of restraints for mentally ill people wasn't uncommon. 
And depending on how disruptive or violent these tenants were, that wasn't such a positive thing for the other people living at the farm. At a later inspection in 1911, the farm conditions were found to be deplorable. In particular, the inspection report condemned the vermin-infested walls and swarms of flies everywhere, especially on the food. So in 1959, Coles County Poor Farm became the Ashmore Estates. The private psychiatric hospital operated until it closed in 1986. Now, one of the most tragic stories surrounding Ashmore Estates took place in 1880, when it was still a poor farm. And that's the tragedy of Elva Skinner. Now, her father, a Civil War veteran, passed away, and her family was left impoverished, as many were at that time. So Elva's mother picked up her three children and moved them to the only place left for them in the world, and that was the Coles County Poor Farm. They grieved their loss while they made themselves a new home and tried to move on with their lives. But on February 15, 1880, when Elva was just five, tragedy struck again. So late that morning, while everybody else was downstairs eating, she woke up and stood by the fire to warm herself while uh, she got dressed. And it's theorized she got too close to the flames because her clothes caught fire. And according to the newspaper reports, um, she was fatally injured before anybody could come to her rescue. So, in actuality, her life was over before it even began. Burned to death because she chanced to stand too close to the fire on the cold winter morning. Well, you know that had to devastate her mother. Already lost her husband, and now she's lost her daughter in such a horrific way. But though Elva was dead, a lot of folks believe her spirit lives on at the abandoned hospital. Now, the building that currently inhabits the site is not the same one that stood on the, there at the time of Elva's death. EVPs at Ashmore Estates have reportedly captured the voice of a young girl pleading for help and asking for her mother. And a lot of folks who have heard it believe this is Elva, still trapped after all these years, wandering around the second and third floors of the hospital looking for her mother. Now, some say it defies logic to think the child could haunt a building she never knew in life, but quite often hauntings are attached to the land, not to a particular building. And although the life and death of little Elva have been documented, reported sightings of her ghost didn't start until around 2004. And uh, a book called The Tales of Coles County was published that year, over a century after the little girl died. And one of the stories in the book featured the ghost of Elva Skinner. Maybe this work of fiction is the spark that drew people's imagination to gravitate to Elva, making them predisposed to hearing her voice or seeing her apparition lingering around the grounds of the abandoned hospital. If that's the case, does that really diminish the evidence of her haunting or simply make people more open to receive it? Whatever the truth may be, we know for a fact Elva lived and died on the land where Ashmore Estates now stands. Now, from Elva Skinner, we go to 1906, And a gentleman by the name of Joe Bloxham. That year, circumstances forced him to become a resident of the poorhouse. Later became Ashmore Estates. 
And despite how gloomy you might imagine living, living in a poorhouse might be, Joe, who was 61 years old at the time, made a home for himself and found contentment and peace. He resided in the poorhouse for 15 years. working with the superintendent to maintain the lawns and grounds and keeping them clean and presentable. And when he was 76 years old, took a trip to Charleston, was last seen at the railroad tracks. And shortly after that, a motorist stopped to pick him up as he made his way toward home. Had severe bruises around his shoulders and upper body and the Good Samaritan drove him the rest of the way home. Once he got there, legend says he was taken down to the boiler room to wait for the doctor. Since he would have had a bed on the premises, you have to assume they hoped the warmth of the boiler room might uh, help him with whatever his issues were. Though nobody knows for certain, it was supposed Joe, who was described as quite feeble, had tried to beat a train and failed. Didn't strike him head on, but sideswiped him, which of course left him battered and bruised. Unfortunately, the shock and trauma from being hit overwhelmed uh, Joe, and he died sitting in the boiler room waiting for the doctor. According to an obituary printed in the Oakland Messenger and reproduced on the Poorhouse Story website, he was buried two days later in a little green plot on the property. And it's said he continues to haunt the, the place he last called home. He appears as a shadowy apparition in the corridors and his gruff voice has been captured on an EVP by paranormal investigators. Leslie Michael, the case manager and assistant investigator for the Illinois Metaphysical and Paranormal Society, they always have these really fancy high-sounding names, don't you know, claims that Joe still inhabits a boiler room where he died. She said, even if you're not seeing anything or actively hearing anything, you, you feel like you're not alone. Goes beyond just feeling unseen eyes looking at you, though. Uh, Investigator Becky uh, Guyman reports that the boiler room is rampant with paranormal activity. People have reported being uh, touched or scratched. Electronic equipment will act up, and things are uh, occasionally thrown at visitors' heads. In fact, when television host uh, Mark Rivera and his cameraman visited Ashmore States, film a Halloween special. Uh, um, Mark was talking with Leslie in the boiler room when this cameraman uh, wandered into the next room. And on the footage from the camera, you see the the shot pan past the table cluttered with dirty wires and cables and, li- and a light bulb. As the camera continues into the room, you there's a clank and a curse can be heard. Steve says that somehow the light bulb threw from where it was sitting on the table and hit him in the neck. Um, the two investigators seem to think Joe's to blame, suggesting he, that um, he was usually angry and doesn't much like being messed with. And I would have to say, if I'm haunting a room and people come in, I'd feel messed with. Uh, freakiest of all, you can hear growls coming from the shadows. So that raises the question, would that be Joe? Locks them? 
Would that be something uh, further up the paranormal scale? And let's go to Peoria, Illinois. The Peoria State Hospital. Now, if you work on the assumption hospitals are so frequently haunted because of the amount of emotional energy, both negative and positive, that's and trauma contained within those walls, then Peoria State Hospital is the perfect Petri dish for paranormal activity. If you look at the list of treatments that were implemented at Peoria State Hospital, it's like reading a timeline of psychiatric and medical treatment. 1902, for example, color therapy was introduced. 1903, light therapy. 1905, hydrotherapy. When in doubt, let's hose them down. 1906, tent colonies were started. Instead of living in your room, you go out to a tent. 1908, industrial therapy was introduced. 1909, phototherapy. 1930s, a almost syphilis outbreak treated by infecting patients with malaria. Not sick enough with syphilis. Let's give them something else. 1938, insulin shock therapies introduced. In the 40s, we saw uh, the introduction of lobotomies and tree planting. 1942, electroconvulsive therapy was introduced. 1951, occupational therapy. In 1963, saw group therapy. When in doubt, that's, well, that's interesting. My system just shut itself down. You know, some of these treatments, like color and light therapy, for example, are innocuous, but others, such as lobotomies, tree panning, and electroconvulsive therapy, would be traumatic and terrifying ordeals for anybody, both patients and witnesses. But in addition to the deaths you would expect to be associated with a hospital, Peoria State Hospital is also connected with at least a handful of murders. According to uh, the Peoria Asylum's history from the Abandoned Whereabouts website, in 1903, a patient was allegedly beaten to death by two attendants. But, as is quite often the case, the perpetrators were never charged. They did it in self-defense. Several decades later, in 1967, a patient smashed a nurse in the head with a steel bar, killed her. 1972, two patients were murdered by fellow patients. One patient was hit in the head with a chain while waiting in line for lunch, and another one was beaten to death. You know, efforts were made over the years to make the hospital as comfortable a place to live as possible. It was still the site of several outbreaks that would be attributed to poor care supervision. 1909, a pellagra outbreak began. The outbreak lasted at least three years, affecting more than 500 patients and killed 150 of them. It's caused by poor diet and Pellagra is a disease that causes diarrhea and eczema, intensely itchy inflammation of the skin, and dementia. 
What's more, in some cases, the disease also causes aggression, confusion, and emotional disturbance. And given that in 1909, Peoria State Hospital was called the Illinois General Hospital for the Insane, you can only imagine how much the outbreak would exacerbate pre-existing conditions in the patients. Now the outbreak occurred in 1930. Syphilis this time. Syphilis also causes the skin rashes and sores, and if left untreated, it can also progress to a point uh, it causes dementia. It can even cause death. And although penicillin used to treat syphilis now had been discovered in 1928, it wasn't a popular treatment for infections until 1942. Till then, many different uh, experimental treatments were used on those infected, some of which might now be considered as, as dangerous, if not more dangerous, than the disease itself. One such treatment, the one used at uh, Peoria State Hospital, was to inject the patients with malaria. And malaria causes a high fever, and the hope was the the fever would literally burn the syphilis out of the system, effectively trading one uh, disease for another. And there were an untold number of deaths as a result of this, shall we say, unusual treatment. Hospital closed in 73, and since then the facility's reputation has grown. A lot of stories abound of suicides in the woods and grocery children who play with balls and a lot of recorded uh, EVPs. One of the most interesting stories, though, took place in 1910 when the hospital was still in operation. Now, this particular story began when a man working in a printing house suffered some form of mental break that led him to to be incapable of intelligent speech to the point he couldn't even tell anybody his name. Sometime before 1910, he was taken into custody by a police officer who noted in his report the man was a bookbinder. Well, when this gentleman was checked into the Peoria State Hospital, which at that point in time was the Illinois Asylum for the Incurable Insane, he was signed in as a bookbinder. Some stories, his name is said to have been Manuel Bookbinder or M. Bookbinder. Regardless, all of the reports agree quickly became known to the other inmates as Old Book. Though he couldn't speak, he was still strong and healthy. So when the man in charge of the hospital, George Zeller, conscripted patients for a burial corps, Old Book was among them. Barrel Corps was a group of six patients and one staff member who, as their name suggests, were responsible for digging the graves for those who died at the hospital, whose remains were unclaimed by family or friends. Hospitals had been built according to what was known as the Cottage Plan, which meant it was quite spread out and comprised several buildings, so most of the patients didn't know one another. In fact, there's a fair chance even the staff didn't know every patient, so... Funerals were usually relatively unemotional. The burial corps would dig the grave and stand quietly off to the side while the funeral service was conducted. And once that was over with, the corps would return to the gravesite to fill in the hole. Surprised everybody when in his very first internment, old Book took off his cap, wiped his eyes, and leaned against the huge old elm tree at the center of the graveyard, letting it support his weight while he sobbed. 
Now, he did this at every single funeral. He'd dig the grave. Once the service began, he'd take off his cap, wipe his eyes, and sob against the tree. Everybody called the graveyard elm. When the time came for old Book's own funeral, held in the hospital cemetery, the service was remarkably well attended because Book had become sort of a local legend around the facility. Dr. Zeller himself officiated, and according to his memoir, several hundred people, including staff and patients, attended. Book's casket was suspended over the grave by two crossbeams, which would remain until the members of the burial corps had lowered it into the ground into the service. Dr. Zeller wrote a book about his time there called Befriending the Bereft. And he wrote, uh, just as the choir finished the last lines of Rock of Ages, the men grasped the ropes, stooped forward, and prepared to lift the coffin in order to permit the removal of the crossbeams and lower it gently into the grave. At a given signal, they all pulled on the ropes. Next instant, all were laying flat on their back. Because the coffin, instead of offering resistance to being lifted, bounded into the air like it was an eggshell, as if it was empty. And the scene that followed that uh, event was a bit chaotic, as you might imagine. The spookiest part of that was the loud, wailing voice suddenly pierced all the commotion and confusion, drawing every eye to the place from which it um, originated, the old elm. And there, visible to everybody attending this funeral, was old Book. He was crying and wailing with an earnestness that outrivaled anything he'd ever done before. I think if I was attending my own funeral, I'd be a tad upset as well. After a moment of stunned silence, the lid of Book's coffin was lifted off, because surely if old Book was leaning against the graveyard elm, he couldn't be dead in the casket. Instantly, he came off the coffin, the wailing stopped. And inside the coffin was old Book. Dead as a hammer. When the mourners looked back at the elm tree where he'd been sobbing, they, they said his apparition had vanished. Zelda wrote, it was awful, but it was real. I saw it. A hundred nurses saw it. Three hundred spectators saw it. There was no question in anybody's mind. The dead man was leaning against the tree sobbing. And then Benjamin Jeffries wrote a book called Lost in Darkness, and he reports that... Uh, Soon after Old Book's funeral, the graveyard elm began to weather and die. He resisted all efforts made to save it, and a year later it was as dead as Old Book. However, when workmen came to remove the dead tree, they struck it with an axe, and an unearthly scream came from it. For years and years, every attempt to remove the tree was foiled by the sound of a horrible wailing emanated from each time it was touched with fire or steel. Eventually, nature which doesn't seem to have much pity, saw to its removal and the graveyard elm was struck during a lightning storm. Not for that, the uh, tree might still be standing today. Not so silent monument to one of Peoria State Hospital's most uh, infamous and beloved patients. Well, let's turn to Indiana. City of Indianapolis. The Central State Hospital. When uh, Psychic Benjamin Jeffries first arrived at Central State Hospital in Indianapolis, his first impression 
was of a thick, heavy blanket made up of extreme sadness and pain. And given the history of this particular location, that was not a, uh, a surprising determination. Formerly known as the Central Indiana Hospital for the Insane, this uh, psychiatric hospital opened in 1848. Back then it was one building that housed five patients. It is situated on over 100 acres of land, and the need for its services was so great it continued to expand until 1926 when it changed its name to Central State Hospital. And by 1928, it housed about 3,000 patients in several buildings. And beneath the grounds connecting the various buildings was a rabbit warren of tunnels. For some reason, those who build these type of facilities love tunnels. And investigators love tunnels as well. You never know what you're going to find. There were allegations of rampant patient abuse that surrounded the hospital from its early days right up until it closed in 1994. One of the most persistent rumors alleges that the tunnels in the deep in the bowels of facilities are more than just a way to get from one building to another. It said that those tunnels contained dark dungeon-like rooms with chains and shackles and the more uh, problematic patients, shall we say, those who scream uncontrollably or have violent tendencies were frequently taken down there and locked up, alone, in the dark, for unknown lengths of time. Unfortunately, there's plenty of evidence to back these rumors up. Not only do hospital workmen and former employees tell stories about stumbling into these rooms, Back in 1870, the superintendent of the hospital wrote about him. In a letter to the governor of Indiana, he said, uh, basement dungeons are dark and humid and foul and unfit for life of any kind, filled with maniacs who raved and howled like tortured beasts, born of light and food and ordinary human associations and habiliments. Uh, we think everybody left in those conditions would rave and howl. And the suffering of a person chained that way would be multiplied if they're already suffering from afflictions of the mind. Interestingly, his treatment of patients was justified under the guise of retraining exercise. The isolation and the darkness were meant to be therapeutic and to, to actually reverse the patient's insanity. Even understanding that we know a lot more about treating mental illness now than we did then. It's difficult, if not impossible, to comprehend how such treatment could be justified or even considered beneficial. Thankfully, once news of these treatments were made to public in 1894, the public outcry was such that uh, use of restraints at the hospital was greatly limited. Still, even those patients who weren't chained up in underground dungeons were kept in conditions that might, uh, if you were feeling generous, be called substandard. Patients slept on straw mattresses and buildings with rotted floors and leaking roofs. And based on the damp conditions, you can imagine the quality of the straw. Dr. Everett, the superintendent, reported that the, the wards these patients were housed in were without adequate provision for light and heat and ventilation. And patients who were lucky enough to have a bed could find themselves confined to it for days at a time. In fact, the very building was used against patients. Uh, window wells were used as tiny cages that would allow patients to be out in the sunlight, but they couldn't walk or escape. 
and frustrated in his attempts to improve the conditions, Dr. Everts actually resigned in protest in 1872. Sadly, his protest uh, accomplished little, if anything. Allegations of abuse persisted till the hospital closed. Staff members were accused of everything from rape and sexual battery to neglect and physical abuse. Though there were plenty of allegations, there doesn't seem to be any convictions against any staff members at Central State Hospital. Still, the accusation taken serious enough that the governor, uh, Evelyn By, um, Evan By, ordered a full investigation into how things were done at the hospital. Now, beneath the buildings is five miles of tunnels, like a labyrinth beneath and between the various buildings. They're dark, claustrophobic, have a history of unimaginable terror, terror and torment. No wonder that it's a setting for a variety of urban legends and very bizarre stories. According to Crime TV's documentary about Central State Hospital, one ghostly presence said to haunt the tunnels is the Red Lady. She was a nurse who used to work at the Central State Hospital. She frequently wore a red cape and did a lot of grounds checks during her shift to ensure nobody was running about where they didn't belong. According to the story, while working in the old main building, the nurse was involved in a tragic but unspecified accident and died. Maybe she didn't realize that death released her from her responsibilities at the hospital because a lot of folks have reported seeing the flash of her red cape when they're down in the tunnels. And it's also said if you're wandering around down there where she doesn't think you belong, she'll touch you to let you know you're in the wrong place and stop you from continuing on. You know, it's maybe somebody ought to go look for the red lady and tell her her shift's over. She can go on to whatever she supposed, reward she's supposed to have. Now, there's several books that tell a number of stories about eerie and unnerving events at the facility. One whispered story it recounts about the tunnels is about a nurse who, while exploring the tunnels, discovered a room with a dirt floor and manacles attached to the walls. She was, of course, disturbed by the sight and its implications, so she left immediately. Years later, or later that year, rather, she happened to be walking by that room when she heard the unmistakable sound of moaning coming from inside it. Despite the fact she was uh, really didn't want to do it, she opened the door to look inside and found the room dark and barren. Still shaken by the encounter, though, she fled the tunnels, and it was several months before she even relayed the event to her supervisor. And uh, the supervisor said, never mind, we, we all know about that room, and we all stay away from it. I else have heard those things. They all knew about the room. They all stayed away from it. How many people have to witness, witness moans coming from an empty room before... It becomes so commonplace you don't even think it's unusual enough to warrant a mention. It does raise interesting questions. Then we got the story of Alvin. Probably one of the most widely reported stories coming from Central State Hospital. It also has a deep connection to the tunnels. Now, Alvin was a low-risk patient at the hospital as such, he was allowed to wander freely around the grounds. One day, though, he just vanished. 
thorough search was conducted, but nobody could find any sign of him anywhere. And because he didn't pose a risk to himself or others, eventually the staff stopped looking, assuming he'd wandered off the grounds or simply come back whenever he got ready. Sometime later, reports differ as to whether it was months or years. A woman named Agnes was admitted to the hospital. After she'd been there for a while, she developed the habit of wandering off herself. According to a former nurse, she had just disappeared from the ward and did search for her, and inevitably she'd be found on the steps that led down to the catacombs, just sitting by herself. Got to be so regular that when she disappeared, instead of calling security, they'd just send somebody down there to bring her back up. Finally, one of the nurses, probably tired from being sent repeatedly to get Agnes from the stairs, asked why she kept going down there. And she shrugged and said she'd like to go visit her friend Alvin who lived in the tunnels. So at this point, you have to ask yourself, had Agnes given any other name for her friend, the nurse might have dismissed her response as fanciful thinking of the results of a terrible mind, but Alvin wasn't a common name. Reminded the nurse of the missing patient from a couple of years before. Maybe Alvin hadn't left the grounds at all. Maybe he was still there, living in the maze-like tunnels underneath their feet. And if that was actually the case, he needed to be found and retrieved for his own safety as well as everyone else's. I mean, let's face it, it wouldn't do to have a mental patient, however harmless, wandering around in the tunnels beneath the hospital. Well, the nurse reported what Agnes said to her superiors, and another search was undertaken. It was as fruitless as the first one until after several hours, one of the searches found a partially open crawl space off the tunnels. Looked inside, and there was Alvin's body. He'd clearly been dead for some time. Well, the discovery of Alvin's body, of course, brought up other questions. How did it get into that claustrophobic crawl space? And how did he die? But even more disquieting is the after the discovery of Alvin's corpse, Agnes stopped sneaking off to hang out at the catacomb stairs and never spoke about Alvin again. It was as though Alvin's spirit had been lingering, waiting for his remains to be discovered and put to rest before he could find his own peace. But you have to ask yourself, how did Agnes know the name Alvin and the fact that he was in the tunnels? Somebody had to tell her. Well, there was one former psychiatric nurse who worked at Central State Hospital for a number of years who claimed to be an agnostic when it came to the supernatural. Um, she reported to um, one writer that the administration discouraged staff from sharing ghost stories, but they still did it on occasion. In fact, it seemed that everybody who worked there had at least one story. The nurse, who uh, had an interesting one to relate, she said shortly before the hospital shut its doors for good, she was working a late shift. And because they'd been moving patients to other hospitals in preparation for central state closing, there was a lot of commotion on the ward. Some psychiatric patients didn't deal well with change, so more often than usual, was more effort than usual was required to get them settled in bed. About around 3 o'clock in the morning, things quieted down enough that she could take a break and relax. Unfortunately, that break was a short one when she heard the sound of a woman sobbing. 
Uh, when she got up to investigate, realized the sound was coming from a room at the end of the hallway. A room that was supposed to be empty. It belonged to a patient already been transferred out. She aggravated the thought that somebody had wandered out of her, their own room and into the empty one, but when she paused outside the room listening to the sounds emanating from inside it, her mood changed. There was something about that sound that made the hair on her arm stand up. It was heartbreaking, like somebody inside was in incredible pain. But when she opened the door, the crying just stopped. There was nobody there. The room was empty. Even the bed was gone. That moment, she felt a wave of fear. She scurried away from the room, back to her desk, poured a cup of coffee, tried to convince herself that there was a logical explanation. Maybe it was the wind. Maybe her imagination. Then she happened to look down the hallway toward where that uh, she'd heard the sobbing and saw this hazy kind of shadow floating in front of that room. She said, I turned my head and stared in that direction, and at that moment it zipped down the hall and disappeared into the wall at the end of the hallway. Now, before you think she was just imagining the whole thing, she wasn't the only person that had seen something like that either. A few years later, when the hospital was empty, it was regularly patrolled by police officers. One officer was alone on the second floor and suddenly heard a woman's high-pitched cry. Spinning around to locate the source, he heard, saw a hazy, feminine form dart through his flashlight beam. She ran to the end of the hallway and vanished into the wall. So you have to ask yourself, was this the same darting shadow that one of the investigators caught on video when he was investigating Central State Hospital? And that footage, captured by a stationary infrared camera, hazy shape darts in front of the camera. It's not quite human, but it's not quite inhuman either. It moves fluidly like water, though it looks more like smoke. And at the end of the hall is a door with a light reflecting from its glass window. Nothing unusual is reflected into that glass. A line of sight between it and the camera's never broken in the video. And you can always see the light reflecting. But the camera's autofocus feature was triggered, and that only happens if something crosses its line of sight. So something did move in front of the camera. Well, in the administration building, uh, odd things happen. I mean, let's face it, strange occurrences aren't limited to just one building on the Central State Campus. Former employees and patients have reported hearing unexplainable sounds, disembodied footsteps, slamming doors, and sobbing in several locations in and around the hospital, including the administration building and the power station. One former patient that's been referred to as Patient X and in uh, Dan Hall's documentary, called one of the nurses who used to work at the hospital. According to the patient, she had a very distinctive witch-like laugh. And when the documentarian and his crew were in those always filming, they captured an EVP that sounded very much like a woman's laugh. You might even call it a witch's cackle. There's no indication that the nurse the patient spoke of has passed away, but... You could consider this laugh to be evidence that energy from its time of operation still lingers in the hospital. For good or for evil. Groundskeeper had a story that took place in the administrative building. He said before he started working there, he never believed in ghosts, but 
After a few graveyard shifts, his feelings in that regard seem to have shifted. He says he's heard doors slam when nobody's been around and also unexplainable footsteps. One dramatic instance of footsteps happened one night when the groundskeeper was relaxing by himself in a side room in the administrative building. Now, this particular room had a huge glass window that overlooked the larger room it was in, probably used by the staff to keep an eye on patients. Out of nowhere, he heard the distinctive sound of high heels click clicking across the floor, heading straight toward him. Jumping out of his chair, he looked through the window. Nobody there, but the footsteps kept right on coming, right up to the other side of the window he was looking through. Sound paused for a moment, and then he heard the footsteps turn and walk back the way they'd come. And the whole time he heard those footsteps, he did not see a single person. A uh, psychic author visited Central State in 1994, found himself drawn to Bearer Building, which is reportedly where the criminally insane were housed. But even stronger was his attraction to the Carpentry Building, situated right beside the power station, uh, which is alleged to have been a hub of spiritual activity. While he was walking around the Carpentry Building taking photographs, he heard uh, two men talking. And one of them said in a very clear voice, what are you doing here? Thinking to make one of the hospital guards or policemen. Central State is situated in the middle of the city, don't you know? He turned toward the round to answer. There was nobody there. He was alone. But the voice had come from so near to him that uh, had he come from a human source, he would have seen the speaker. You know, he has investigated location, haunted locations all over the world and is used to brushing up with the other side. He says he still gets chill when he thinks about that voice. You know, the power station is one of the areas of the greatest paranormal activity at Central State Hospital. Some people believe the power station can act as a sort of battery for ghosts, amplifying and empowering them. And there's more on that in New York section about the Rolling Hills Asylum. People who describe it as theory also tend to believe that most ghosts and hauntings are a result of residual energy left behind when people's bodies die. And that would explain why entities affect electrical equipment, like electromag uh, electromotive force, EMF readers, and the, the like. It also explain why phenomena reported in their facilities that generate electricity tend to be stronger, more powerful than the, those reported elsewhere. I know I ran into a similar situation at the Asarco, the oldest smelter in the state of Texas. We did a uh, an overnight stay there, and uh, one of the big places of activity was the power station. Somebody had been killed there, and apparently a spirit never left. Um, I also sat in uh, an empty building listening to conversations and machines running all around me, wasn't a soul there. And security uh, logs. Because they had a very active security force. I tell an interesting story. Uh, one of the security guards was uh, doing a Jeep patrol and met a work crew coming back from uh, working in uh, one of the smelters. By the time he could get turned around and go back, see who they were, there was nobody there. And one of the interesting things, a lot of the uh, indigent 
would sleep in the slag heaps because they always emanated heat. Because it was actually uh, slag that would be dumped and then as needed take it into the smelter. Well, quite often, as they slept, more slag would arrive, usually on trains, and be dumped in the same area. So I was told by the uh, manager of the smelter, there's no telling me how many bodies will be found when all the slag is uh, finally done away with. Because once they get that slag on them, the heat kills them almost immediately. All right. We were talking about uh, the power station at the Central State Hospital. And the paranormal activity at this particular facility tends to take the form of rattling pipes and voices and shadows and screams and spontaneous equipment activity. And in addition to this, on at least one occasion, a workman in the power station was physically attacked. Midway through his shift, he became tired and found himself in a comfortable place to take a nap. He chose a room with only one door so somebody could sneak up on him and find him slacking off. But he was jolted from sleep by the sensation of being choked. Broke free from the stranglehold, jumped to his feet, and turned on the light to see who had attacked him, but uh, he was by himself. No way anybody could have left the room without him seeing them because he stood between the doorway and the rest of the room, but there was nobody there. Well, he retreated out into the light of day and told his colleagues about the attack, pulled his shirt down to show the dark red marks around his neck. He refused to ever go back into that part of the power station again even though he knew it would jeopardize his job. Well, when the um, paranormal documentary was done, um, they filmed in the power station. They captured several EVPs. First one recorded uh, shortly after one of the psychics on the team mentioned feeling a force in the basement that wanted them to leave. Now, on the video, none of the investigators of the film crew react to the voice at the time, so it's safe to assume they didn't hear it until they reviewed the footage later. But shortly after the psychic says the entity wanted them to leave, they heard the words go, for God's sakes. Once the team had exited the uh, power station, according to equipment they left behind captured the sound of pipes clanging. No logical reason for the pipes to make noise since the power station has been closed for several years. And that sound is followed by an EVP of somebody saying, Bye. I guess it makes a certain type of sense. The kind that makes you never want to set foot in that building uh, again. Well, on that note, we come to the end of the day's show and my peanut gallery seems to be getting upset. So until tomorrow at this time, this is Ken Hudnall for the Ken Hudnall Show saying have a truly great evening. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.